0: morning. I have to hand it to the worship team. Um, Last week, this week, next week, finding worship songs to go with this material is pretty incredible. In the temple in Jerusalem there was a curtain that hung between the holy place and the most holy place at the center. The curtain, according to some estimates, was at least four inches thick, thirty feet tall. It was a serious. It hung there as a serious reminder that uh, there is a separation that we human beings have between us and God. That in our sin, we have brought this separation upon ourselves, and we are not allowed. We're not allowed, in fact, to go beyond that veil. Only one person was allowed to go beyond that veil. That was the priest, and that was only once a year. And even that was risky. That was risky because so risky the priest had bells sewn into the, the hem of his robe so that while he was in there moving around on his own, no one else around there, people outside could hear that he was still alive in case God should strike him dead. He had a rope tied to his ankle. If the bells stopped for a while, They would assume he was dead and they would pull him back out. So not a safe place to be. And yet we read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, as Jesus was dying on the cross, with a loud cry Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And with that, we who were once excluded were were granted access to the most holy place, the place where God dwelt, the place where heaven and earth meet. Even more, we no longer have to go there to have access to God, for God no longer resides in the temple alone. God is everywhere. The first part of Genesis 3, which we looked at last week, we were told that the sin that separated us from God entered into the world when Adam and Eve fell to the temptation of the serpent. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, they and we now had knowledge, experiential knowledge, of what it means to choose the bad over the good and thus to turn away from God. Last week we looked at what the serpent said. This week we're going to look at how God responded to what happened there. God comes to walk with the man and the woman in the cool and breezy part of the day. And he cannot find them. They are hiding. They have become aware. Their eyes have been opened. They have become aware of their own sin and shame and they're hiding in the trees. They've sewn fig leaves together to cover themselves. Verses 9 through 13. A bit of review from last week. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God questions uh, the man and the woman. But he doesn't bother to do so with the serpent. He invites the humans into a conversation about what has gone on. But not the serpent. He simply will announce a curse on the serpent. So in Genesis 1, God blessed things. In Genesis 3, God reverses that blessing upon one of the very creatures he had blessed on day 6. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "...because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel." There's going, there going to be more to say about this particular part of the passage in a few minutes. But most clearly, I want us to start in a certain place. Most clearly, in its original context, this curse is about the disharmony that sin causes in creation. Scholar John Goldengate suggested in his commentary that the most obvious thing going on here is that this story explains the disruption between humankind and creation. That there is a rupture there. The hostility between human beings and the animal kingdom, in particular, why snakes are one of the most feared animals in the world. Mosquitoes kill as many as a million people every year, human beings, every year around the world. Guess who comes in second place? Human beings. Human beings kill approximately 475,000, and this is by murder, this is not by accident, 475,000 other human beings every year. Third place, snakes. They kill as many as 80,000 humans each year. So there is indeed enmity between humankind and the animal kingdom. Snakes in particular. That's a very important part of what God is saying here. Sin not only disrupts our relationship with God, sin disrupts our relationships with creation. To this day, there is enmity, there is hostility, there is animosity between the descendants of Adam and Eve and snakes. One other thing. Notice that the hostility is not only between the serpent and the woman, but between her offspring and the serpent's offspring. Now, it's clear that whatever is going on, there will, it will continue to go on with the descendants. It will keep happening the descendants of both the woman and the serpent. In in Christian tradition, we have almost universally identified the serpent with Satan or the devil. But Satan doesn't have offspring. Snakes do. Once again, the picture is about the disharmony in creation as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. Like I said, there's going to be more to say about this, and we'll get there shortly. So if you have stones and you're ready to stone me, because just hold on to them a little bit longer. Verse 16, first part. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. It's important to know that in this larger passage, God curses the serpent, God curses the ground, God does not curse human beings. Eve, however, might beg to differ. At first blush, when we first read it, it sounds like a curse to me. But I heard something on the Bible project, then I decided to go dig into it and see if I could understand it better and verify it. And it turns out to be true. I'm thinking it might be encouraging for, I don't know, half of us in this room. I shared this with Kim, and she said, that changes everything. The word translated as pains and painful labor elsewhere is commonly used to express not physical pain, but emotional pain. It is a word that can mean pain, labor, toil, hardship, or sorrow. So maybe, it happens every once in a while, the old King James translation gets something important when God says there, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. The word the NIV translates, the New International Version translates as Uh, childbearing means conception, pregnancy, not the act of giving birth. The other two places, there are only two other places in the Old Testament where this Hebrew word is used. In those two places, the NIV translates it as conception or to conceive. So while I do not deny the physical pain of childbirth, maybe, quite possibly, uh, uh, even probably, (laughs) what God is really saying here is that because of what she has done, Because she has sinned against God, she has caused brokenness and uh, dysfunction in God's very good creation. God says, you will now find great sorrow in conceiving and bringing children into the world. The NIV misses something else. Whereas the NIV says that the pains of childbirth will be, quote, very severe... More literally, it reads that the pains the woman had already experienced will be increased, or again, King James, multiplied. Could it be that giving birth, physically speaking, would have been painful even if Eve had never sinned? Could it be that but now with the entrance of sinfulness and brokenness into the world, it will be even more painful to bring a child into this world than it was? Could it be that we will do so with great sorrow. Because that's what sin has done. I think so. Because I think the evidence is strong and because it just makes more sense in the context of what's happening here. Especially, especially if we consider what happens next in the story. In Genesis chapter 4, Eve will have two sons, Cain and Abel. They will grow up and Cain will murder his younger brother. And Eve's pain, Eve's sorrow in bringing children into the world will be increased and multiplied. For so this is what happens when we go our own way and rebel against God. How many, how many people have asked in the past, maybe you've asked it, maybe you've heard someone else, ask whether it was wise to bring a child into this world. Sometimes we probably say it just to be you know, provocative, but... How many have asked that? How many people may be asking that very question this week after the mass shooting in Buffalo and the one at the elementary school in Texas? We may conceive and bring children into the world in sorrow because that world seems to be in love with violence. That world seems to have made an idol of death. Very quickly God says one more thing to the woman. Last part of verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Desire here does not mean romantic desire. It is the same word we will again encounter in chapter 4 next week. When sin desires to have Cain and cause him to kill his brother. It wants to control him. It wants to consume him. God is saying to Eve, now that you have done this thing, the relationship between you and your husband will be one of strife. You will want to control him and he will want to control you, disharmony once again. God's good creation is ruptured. The judgment continues, verses 17 to 20. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. There's more we could cover here. But what I want us to notice uh, is just a couple of important details. First, it is often taught in my experience that having to work was a part of the judgment of God after Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit. Had they not done so, we could all just lie around on the couch, watch Netflix and eat bonbons all day long. But remember from the very start, Genesis 2.15 tells us that God put the man in the garden to work it and take care of it. Work was always a part of God's plan for his partnership with those whom he made in his image. Work is good. But now that humanity has gone their own way, work will be harder Because we are not relying on God to provide for us, we now must work and strive for the things we need, at least when we are not walking and living with God. Jumping back to verse 17. The second detail I want you to notice is that highlighted part there, the painful toil. Painful toil is how the NIV translates it, which is how he describes how the man will now work the ground, with painful toil. It's the same word. Used above to talk about Eve's pain and bringing children into the world. It could also be translated sorrow. The King James Version, once again, has it as sorrow. They take the same word and they translate it the same way three times. Imagine. Why? Why is it now sorrowful? Because it's a whole lot harder than it had to be. Work done in harmony with. And in cooperation with God's spirit is better and more life-giving than work done in contention to God's wills, God's will, and God's ways. It's not all that different than something Jesus said in Matthew 28 through 30: "Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy." and my burden is light. What is true of working the soil, raising your own food, raising children, is true in every area of life when we live over and against God's ways. So Jesus invites us back to Eden where his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There is still work to be done. But now it is work in which we are yoked together with Jesus. We do not do it alone. We do not do it on our own. And so speaking of Jesus, it's now time to ask how this part of Genesis 3 might lead us to Jesus. So first let's go back to what I suggested earlier when I told you to put down your stones for a minute. I suggested that the hostility between the serpent's offspring and the woman's in Genesis 3.15 was most Obviously about the animosity between human beings and the animal kingdom. Not between human beings and Satan. For nowhere in the Old Testament is the serpent equated with Satan. However. Some material in the Apocrypha. Which is the the Apocrypha is the, the books that were written in between the Old and New Testaments. And very many of the New Testament Christians that we meet. Would have been familiar with what was written in those. In the Apocrypha. There is some material in which the serpent and Satan are equated. The same is true of the New Testament. The same is true of the New Testament. There are several places where Satan is equated with the serpent. This connection between the serpent and Satan was a later development, a later understanding. So on the surface of things, I think the most obvious meaning to people of Old Testament times was that the hostility between the serpent and the woman and their offspring was all about the impact of her sin on creation. But, knowing that it is true, that there is a unity to Scripture, and that unity leads to God's greater plan to send a Messiah for us all, there is more in this passage. We might see it as an Easter egg, something hidden in the text. Now, I've mentioned Easter eggs to you before, and I will mention them again A quick refresher, an Easter egg in a movie is something that the filmmakers have hidden in the movie to link to something else beyond the movie. Perhaps it's a movie yet to be released, perhaps it's something nostalgic of an old version of the film and they just want to honor that, or perhaps it's giving you a hint as to what might happen in the sequel. In the latest Doctor Strange movie, there is an Easter egg that tells us they are currently working on a film to reboot the Fantastic Four. It's a badly hidden Easter egg, it's really obvious, but it is an Easter egg. There is an Easter egg in Genesis 3.15. Once again, God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The offspring the, woman will crush, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent wounds the human. There is an Easter egg here. That has a fancy theological name that I can't say very well and you may not remember it. But what it means is the first gospel. The first gospel. This Easter egg hidden in Genesis 3 points to the coming of Christ and his victory over Satan and evil and death. The first gospel. In his letter to the Romans in our New Testaments, the Apostle Paul closes with several exhortations and words of encouragement. He warns them not to pay any attention to the false teachers who might deceive them. And he exhorts them to be, quote, wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And then he writes in verse 20 of Romans 16... ...that God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. This is a clear reference back to this Easter egg in Genesis 3.15. For this is what Christ Jesus has done... In rising from the dead, it is what he will do when he returns to establish the new heavens and the new earth fully and finally. In the end, he will be victorious. In the end, we will be victorious. The serpent will be crushed. In the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of the Christ, he inserts this idea not into the resurrection, but into Jesus' prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is wrestling in prayer and moaning in prayer and down on the ground. And Satan is off in the corner of the garden. And from beneath Satan's feet, a snake slithers out over to Jesus. Begins to rest its head on his hand while he's on the ground praying. And then Jesus regains his composure, stands up, regains his resolve. And stomps on the head of the snake and kills it. Now, that movie certainly has its flaws. But this bit of poetic license is quite powerful and and a faithful interpretive move. It was in the garden where Jesus was praying that Jesus made the decision, not my will but thine be done. It is in the garden where Jesus in prayer decided he would go God's way, not his way. He would not give in to the temptation. He would choose the way of God over his own. And as I said last week, he passed the test where Adam and Eve and all of us have failed it. And he passed it on our behalf. There's still another Easter egg in our passage. I didn't, like, other people get to preach some passages in the series. Nobody was getting this one. I wanted to preach this one. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which it had, he had, it had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This paragraph could easily be a whole sermon. But let me just point out a couple things. First, there is grace here. Grace that also points us to Christ Jesus. And that grace is that God remains involved with the fallen human beings even after they are banished from the Garden of Eden. They're banished from the Garden of Eden. They are not banished from God. God does not give up. God clothes them. God protects them from being able to eat of the tree of life when they are such broken, sinful people. It is a mercy That they are not allowed to eat from the tree of life and live forever in this state. And it is a mercy that God will still seek them out even after he banishes them from the garden. Then God places cherubim, warriors uh, and a flaming sword on the east side of the garden to uh, guard the way back. Cherubim is plural of the word cherub which might bring to mind this image. That is way wrong. (laughs) The image of cherubim that we get from the pages of Scripture, they are ferocious beings comprised of animal parts and heads and wings. Like this. Now I ask you, which one of these do you want guarding your valuable things? (laughs) You can learn more about the cherubim and other spiritual beings video that I've linked in the uh, Bible app live event uh, about uh, cherubim and angels I encourage you that Bible app if you don't have it every once in a while we like to say this for anybody who might be new here you can get it anywhere you get your apps for your tablet or your phone download it click on the more button click on events and if you have your location services turned on we should pop right up you'll find resources questions for further thought and discussion and a whole lot more back to the cherubim Earlier in this series, I tried to demonstrate how the the structure of the Garden of Eden uh, is mirrored in the design of the tabernacle and then the temple. I'm not going to review all of that here except to draw our attention to one detail. God places cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden and to the tree of life. And later in the book of Exodus, when God shows Moses a pattern, a blueprint for the tabernacle and later for the temple... He includes this detail in Exodus 26. Make a curtain of blue, purple, scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasp and place the Ark of the Covenant Law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Cherubim are woven into the curtain in the temple that separates the holy place from the most holy place where God dwells, where heaven and earth meet. The cherubim on the curtains guarding the way to the most holy place mirror the cherubim in the Garden of Eden protecting the tree of life. And then, as we saw earlier... With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Four inches thick. What curtain stands between you and God this morning? It may be that you don't know God at all, but I don't even mean that. We still allow things to get between us and God. What thing, what sin... What lie, what habit, what false understanding of who God is or how God feels about you inhibits you from drawing nearer to God and experiencing a deeper and fuller life with God. Whatever it is, it need not be in the way. For the curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom. The cherubim who have guarded the way back to the tree of life have been relieved of duty. They are no longer necessary. Jesus has made a way. His cross has changed absolutely everything and his righteousness has become ours. We are free to enter in to the most holy place. We are free to come to know God and to be fully known by God. We are free to experience God anywhere and everywhere because of what Jesus has accomplished. That's the good news. I am going to end this morning just by reading a lengthier portion of Scripture from Romans chapter 8. And as I read it, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up And we will move right from that into our closing worship. This is from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say? The Apostle Paul is writing. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things?